Years ago when I was a pastor in California, I used to go up into the mountains and pray on Thursdays, all day long on Thursdays. And one particular Thursday, I was way up on a high mountain, way out in the middle of nowhere. And I look over about a 100 yards from me and I see a big, huge mountain lion. And uh, those are scary animals. They say when you find a mountain lion, what you ought to do is make yourself as big as you can and make as much noise as you can. So I prayed to the Lord and I grabbed a couple big rocks and I thought, what am I going to do? There's only one way off this mountain. There is another way, but it's straight down and I didn't think I should go that way. And so I sat there and I prayed and I thought, and in the meanwhile, the mountain lion went right down the path where I had to go into some trees. What mountain lions love to do is get up in trees and crouch and then pounce on their prey. So I knew that wasn't good news for me that the mountain lion went there. And I sat there for I don't know how long just thinking, what shall I do? And eventually I just thought, i got to go. i got to take my chances and trust Jesus. So I grabbed my rocks And at the top of my lungs, I sang that song, How Great Thou Art! How Great Thou Art! And I never saw that mountain lion again. And I thought this morning as we were singing that, that what a great metaphor that is for how worship drives back the enemies of God. So especially at this time of year, brothers and sisters, but all throughout the year, let the praise of God ring forth from our mouths and drive back the enemies of God. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, You are great, and You are greatly to be praised. You are indescribable. You are uncontainable. You are untamable. And all the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of His hands. So cause us this morning, I pray, to join the chorus and sing, Hallelujah, Jesus Christ has come. He is the King of all things. Fill our mouths with praise, I pray, Father, as I preach this Word as faithfully as I can. Make Your Word live for us today, and by Your Spirit, live in us today, I pray. And if there's anyone in this room who walked in and does not know You as their Savior, and their Lord, and their King, and their Protector, and their best friend, then, Father, please open their eyes that they might see the glory of God, that they might walk out of this place a child of the King of heaven and earth. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our Lord and God. In Jesus' great and gracious name we pray. Amen. Christmas is the celebration of what I consider to be the central moment in the history of the universe. It's the celebration of the day on which Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and by whom all things are upheld, actually took on flesh and dwelt among us as the God-man that He might reconcile us to God, both Jews and Gentiles. All of history before this moment was leading up to the birth of Jesus Christ. And all history after this moment takes its meaning from the birth of Jesus Christ. Indeed, the birth of our Lord and Savior is the center point of the history of the universe. And so, brothers and sisters, we must be careful not to underestimate the magnitude of what we're celebrating at this time of year. We must be careful to not underestimate the fact that what we're celebrating is infinitely meaningful. 
and incomprehensibly important and inexhaustible in all of its parts. It's crucial that we as Christian people do what we must to keep ourselves awake and alive to the profundity and the purpose and the power of this time of year. It's crucial that we do what we must not to be lulled asleep by all of the activities of the season and miss the great glory of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And oh, how I pray that our Father will keep that kind of dullness of heart far away from us at this time of year and allow us to live in Christ and see the beauty of what God has done in Christ at the Christmas season. So with that in mind, I want to ask you a few questions These are directed probably a little bit more at people who've been walking with Christ for some time, but really they're relevant to all of us. Three questions. Number one, what do you do at this time of year to keep yourself awake to the infinitely significant realities of the Christmas season? How do you do it? How do you keep yourself from being lulled asleep? How do you keep yourself from going callous or cold at this time of year, simply because you've just worshipped so many times at Christmas. Christmas has come and gone for you so many times, and isn't it easy to just fall into a pattern where you say, I've been there, I've done that, I know what this is about, I know what the traditions are, and you just kind of fall asleep to the glory of what's right before you. Final question. How do you keep yourself from being distracted by and sucked into the consumerism of our culture at this time of year. Friends, these questions are worth pondering. And so I want to encourage you later on today to spend some time doing just that. We don't have Sunday school today, so maybe you could take the hour or so that you normally give to Sunday school and just sit down with your family and think about these things and search your heart and ask God, God, how will my heart stay warm to you this Christmas season? How will my eyes stay open to the beauties of what you have done in Christ? I want to share with you just one thing that I have done for the last, I don't know, five or six years that has really helped me stay warm to Christ and stay awake to Christ at this time of year. Every year about Thanksgiving time, I take up my Bible and I read the story of the birth of Jesus Christ in Matthew, in Luke, and in John. Now those of you who know the Bible well are probably thinking, wait a minute, John doesn't tell the story of the birth of Jesus Christ, but in a manner of speaking, he does. Because he talks about in the first 18 verses of his gospel, the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. The word took on flesh and dwelt among us, he said in verse 14. So in in a manner of speaking, that really is his version of the Christmas story. So every year about Thanksgiving, I pull it out and and I usually just read all three gospel accounts. And I ask the Lord, Lord, would you please highlight for me just one aspect of this story that I could focus on and meditate on as deeply as I possibly can. And friends, the Lord has always been faithful to give me something that's just grabbed my heart. And this habit has always helped me to stay awake to Christ and alive to Christ. And it's given me eyes to see how vast and deep and wide the realities of Christmas really are. It's helped me, my heart to keep from being dulled. It's been, I was thinking earlier this week, kind of like the focus on a camera. I don't know about you, but all the hustle and bustle of this time of year tends to knock the focus out of whack for me. And a lot of stuff can get blurry. But when I take one aspect of the Christmas story and really think about it, 
really meditate on it, really let the Lord speak to me about it, it's like he takes that camera and puts it right back into focus. And not just the gospel story, but everything else at this time of year takes its proper place as well. So I want to commend this practice to you. Just read the Christmas story and ask Jesus, please, will you highlight one thing for me, Lord, that I can think about deeply this year? In past years, I've thought about things like the innkeeper at Bethlehem. And specifically that year, I was asking myself and I asked others if we were going to be like him and shut out the King of Kings or if we would make room for him in our hearts. One year, this was a fun meditation for me. I thought about the fact that Jesus Christ was the one who created everything, right? And therefore, if you think about it, Jesus Christ created his own mother. And he created his own stepfather, as it were. He created Judas, who would betray him. He created the tree out of which the cross would be made. That's an interesting meditation. A lot of deep, deep things to think about there. Last year, some of you probably remember, I thought about the Old Testament prophets. I thought about all these prophecies, hundreds of prophecies that foretold the coming of Jesus Christ. And I thought about all the confirmations that those prophecies really did exist. Some of the naysayers say that Christians actually went back to the Old Testament and changed the text to make it look like they foretold the birth of Christ. But the Dead Sea Scrolls put them to silence because the Dead Sea Scrolls have all these prophecies in there and they were 200, 300 years before Christ. So it's kind of hard for people in 1 or 10 or 100 A.D. to change texts that are 300 years older than they were. So that was a really fruitful meditation. And then finally this year, I decided to meditate on the star of Bethlehem. What that star was, what its purpose was, and what the meaning of its existence is for our life today. And so this morning, I want to share with you some of my musings about this star and about the Magi and about the whole events surrounding that. I want to invite you with me into the wonder of the fact that the heavens declare the glory of God and even the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Even the created order could not keep silent when Christ was born. But it had to shout out and say, Hallelujah, Jesus Christ has come. So I want to invite you into that wonder with me this morning. So let's begin by working our way through the story, and then at the end of the message, I'll come back and think more specifically with you about the Bethlehem star. No one is really sure how much time had passed, but sometime after the birth of Jesus Christ... um, In Bethlehem, when Herod was still the ruler of Judea, some wise men from the east made the long journey down to Jerusalem. Now, children, traditionally we say there was how many wise men? Someone just shouted out? Three. But did you know the Bible doesn't actually say that? The Bible just says this. It says that wise men, plural, came from the east to Jerusalem. So there may have been three of them. There may have been a whole group of them. Fact is, we just don't really know. Neither do we know exactly where in the east they came from, although we do have two pretty good guesses about this. The first guess is that perhaps they came from Assyria. Assyria is modern-day Iran, so the same peoples that exist there now existed way back when Christ was born, and it's quite possible that the wise men came from there, and here's a couple of reasons why. Some of you who have studied biblical history may remember that in 723 and 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire came and conquered the north part of Israel. 
and they deported those peoples to other parts of their kingdom. They intermarried them, and then they took the offspring and resettled that offspring back in the north part of Israel. That Those sort of half-breeds, if you will, came to be known as the Samaritans in the New Testament. And so the point is, the Assyrians and the Jews had centuries and centuries of very intimate interaction together, and it's not at all hard to imagine that some of their scholars and wise men, if you will, were familiar with the Old Testament, and specifically were familiar with the prophecies about Jesus Christ. And to add to this case, about 1,000 years before Jesus Christ was born, a religious leader in Assyria rose up, and his name was Zoroaster. Perhaps you've heard about him before. They still worship him today. Zoroastrianism, they call it. Zoroaster actually taught that there was only one God. He taught monotheism, which was exceedingly rare in that day. And what is more, he made a prediction that sometime in the future, there would arise a king who would, number one, raise the dead, and number two, would transform the world into a kingdom of peace and security. Isn't that amazing? A thousand years before Christ, this guy was predicting someone who would be like Christ. And his later followers, who still predated Christ, said that that king would come from, quote-unquote, the descendants of Abraham. So even in the Assyrian culture, there was this prophecy about a coming king from the Jews. And it's not at all hard, therefore, to imagine that wise men from Assyria made the trek to Jerusalem to, to see his coming. The second guess we have about who they were is that the wise men came from Babylon, which, does anybody know what that modern-day city is called? Ancient Babylon is what? I can't hear you. Iraq, but more specifically, it's Baghdad. The city of Baghdad is the city of Babylon. Same place, same people, same everything. Now, you may also remember that about 586 B.C., the Babylonian Empire, which had conquered the Assyrian Empire... You know, the stuff between the Iranians and the Iraqis, this goes back a long, long way. And the Iraqis, so to speak, had conquered the Assyrians, and now they went into Israel, and they conquered the southern part of Israel, including Jerusalem. They also deported the Jews back to Babylon, but unlike the Assyrians, they allowed them to stay pure, if you will. In other words, they did not intermarry them with other peoples. And what's more significant, they allowed the Jews to continue to worship their God with a lot of freedom. In fact, it was in this time of history that the synagogue arose. Before this time, there were no synagogues, but in Babylon, the synagogue arose, and that became a very important part of life as Jews. The reason that the rise of the synagogue and the flourishing of Judaism is so important here is because it implies that without doubt, the leading people among the Babylonians would have been very familiar with the teachings of the Jews, and specifically with the teachings about Jesus Christ. You'll probably remember that the prophet Daniel at one point became the chief wise man in all of Babylon. Besides the king, Daniel, a Jew, was the most powerful man in all of Babylon. And so there's no doubt in my mind for sure that the Babylonian scholars knew about Judaism and were familiar with Daniel's writings. And of all the Old Testament prophets, who is the most specific about times and dates? It's Daniel. Daniel, you could actually calculate the year that Jesus Christ was born if you read Daniel carefully. And so it's not at all hard to imagine wise men in Babylon who had one eye on the prophecies of Daniel and perhaps others, and another eye up on the sky that was looking for signs. Because the Babylonians 
were the world's leading astrologers at that time of history. They knew more about the movements of the stars than anybody in the world. And to this day, there exists astrological records that they kept that go 2,000 years before Christ. So it's not at all hard to imagine that they had one eye on Daniel and one eye on the sky, and they were looking for the Christ to come. Again, though, no one knows for sure where the wise men came from, but here's probably, in my mind, the most important thing that we should take from these informed guesses. This was probably new to me. I hadn't really thought about this before. But the wise men were not unfamiliar with the Jewish culture. They did not just sort of come out of nowhere and decide to go to Jerusalem and find some king. They were most likely very intimately knowledgeable about the Jewish culture and had in fact for quite some time been looking for this king that would raise up. And as they were looking to Daniel, perhaps, and to the sky for sure, at some point some kind of light began to shine in the sky and somehow these guys knew that's the signal that Christ has been born. And so they gathered all their resources for the journey and they set out on the long trek from wherever they came in the east all the way to Jerusalem. Remember, there were no cars, there were no planes, they had to walk. It was a very, very long journey. And when they got to Jerusalem... They followed that star westward all the way there. They were given an immediate audience with King Herod, which is a very big deal. Think about this with me for a second. If you and I traveled to Washington, D.C. today, do you think they would allow us just to walk in and see President Bush? Hey, President Bush, been praying for you, thinking about you, just want to come in and say hello. Well, it doesn't work that way, does it? And it didn't work that way in that day either. So for them to come to Jerusalem probably unannounced, and just get into Herod's presence tells us that these were important men. They were not just run-of-the-mill, everyday guys, and they got this audience with King Herod. And when they were there, they told them about, they told him about their journey, and they told him about the star. When Herod had heard about this, and specifically the part about Jesus Christ raising up to be a reigning king, the text says that he was greatly troubled along with all Jerusalem. And I think that the main reason he was troubled is because they saw Jesus Christ as a threat to their power. They saw him as a threat to their kingdom and they wanted to do away with him. After all, you have to understand, the wise men did not come to talk to Herod about a vulnerable baby in a manger. They did not even come to talk to him about some religious leader that was going to rise up and be influential. They didn't talk to him about a man who would bear the sins of the world and reconcile us to God. No. They said, we have come to worship a king. We have come to worship a king. Look there with me in verse 2 at what their question was to Herod. This will tell you why he was nervous. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose in the east, and we have come to worship him. Friends, the wise men weren't looking for a little baby merely. They were looking for a ruling, reigning king. And this is why Herod felt so threatened. When that meeting was over, here's what Herod did. He called all of the chief priests and the scribes, the leaders of the Jews, and brought them into his presence. And he asked them, where is this Christ supposed to come from? 
Now, Herod was no doubt familiar with the teachings of the Jews. No ruler in that area would be so foolish as not to know the religion of that area. So I'm sure he was familiar. But what he was asking here was specifically, where is this supposed to happen? I want to know. And here was their answer. They quoted Micah 6, 2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so was confirmed two things in Herod's mind. Number one, this is a ruler we're talking about. This is not just some baby in a manger. This is a threat to my kingdom. And then number two, what was confirmed in his mind is where this child was. He's undoubtedly in Bethlehem. So here's what he did. He dismisses everybody. And then he calls the wise men back into his presence for a private audience. And what he says to them is, Tell me a little bit more about this star that you have seen. And I wonder if you think he was really interested in that star or not. I don't think he was. I think he used that as a pretense to get them into his presence because after the conversation, what did he say? He said, go to Bethlehem, you wise men, and I want you to search diligently for that child. Find that child. And when you find him, send word back to me that I too may come and worship Him. But probably you saw in the text with me that that was not His true intention. He did not want to worship the Christ. He wanted to rid the earth of that Christ. But at that time, the wise men didn't know what He was really up to, so they obeyed the King. And they set out toward Bethlehem. And as soon as they walked out of the palace, the text says this. Look with me, please, at verses 9 and 10. And behold... The star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now why is that? Why does the text say that? Well, I, along with many others that I read this week and the week before that, take this to mean that the star that they had originally seen and guided them westward. By the way, when, when, when you, when you sing songs that say a star in the east appeared, that's actually based off of a mistranslation of the word that the King James translated wrongly. All the rest just say a star rose because it had to be westward. They were traveling from the east to the west. And so the star rose up and they followed it all the way to Jerusalem. And many of us think the star then disappeared. It went out of their sight some way or other. As soon as this meeting with Herod is over and they walk out of the palace to go to Bethlehem, behold, there's the star. And it was a miracle. And they were surprised. And they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now tell me, how could Matthew have stated the case any more strongly than that? He could have just said, they rejoiced. He could have said, they rejoiced exceedingly. But he really poured it on and said, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And so they should have, because they followed that star now southward all the way to Bethlehem. And not only did it lead them to Bethlehem, but it led them to the very home in which Jesus Christ and His family was residing. And can you imagine their joy? How many months it took them to walk from wherever they were to where the Christ was. And behold, there He is! Finally, after all this waiting, all this searching, all this journeying, and there He is. And when they saw Him, they fulfilled the ultimate purpose of their journey. 
they got down on their knees and they prostrated themselves before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and they worshipped Him with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength. Please don't miss this point. The wise men's journey was not simply to go and see the, the fulfillment of a prophecy. The point of their journey was to worship the King of Kings, to worship the Lord of Lords, who would one day rule over all things forever and ever and ever. And friends, in their worship is portended more than we can imagine. Because what they probably didn't know is that King of Kings came to reconcile not only the Jews to God, but to reconcile all peoples to God. And now even here, right at His birth, came the Gentiles, came the nations to worship Him and to bow before Him. Paul wrote in Ephesians 6 or 2, I think it's 16 or, or maybe 17, that Jesus Christ came for the Jews and the Gentiles, reckoning, reconciling us both to God in one body on the cross. And the worship of these Gentile leaders portends all of that, that the gospel was for the nations and not just for the Jews. Oh, what a glorious time of worship that must have been. How I wish I could have been there on the floor with these men of God and with Mary and with Joseph and with whoever else was there worshiping the King of Kings. Don't you wish you could have been there just to see what it was like and to feel what it was like and to know the presence of God in your midst with them? Well, who knows how long their time of worship lasted. Maybe it was hours, perhaps days, perhaps weeks. We don't know because Matthew doesn't say. But at some point, they took their rest and they fell asleep. And while they were sleeping, God gave them a dream. And the dream simply said this, Do not go back to Herod. And so they took their lives in their hands and they disobeyed King Herod. And they obeyed the Almighty God of the universe. We ought to learn a lesson from that. We ought to fear God and not fear men. And when God commands us to do something, we ought to do it, even if it means we take our lives in our hands. That's what they did. They went back north, but rather than going through Jerusalem, they skirted around Jerusalem and went to their own home country, and they disappeared into the annals of history. We never hear about the wise men again. The reason being, because the story wasn't about them in the end. The story was about this King of Kings, in this Lord of Lords that they had come to worship. Now with that, I want to spend the few minutes we have left focusing our attention on this star of Bethlehem. What was the star? What was its purpose? Why did this thing shine in the sky? What was the point of it all? Why was it part of the Christmas story at all? And finally, what does it have to do with our lives? So three questions. What was it? What was its purpose? And what does it have to do with our lives? What do you think the star of Bethlehem might have been. Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever spent some time meditating on this, what that thing might have been? Some have said it was a comet. Some have thought it was a, a, a meteor or a series of meteors. They must have been pretty slow-moving meteors if that's what it was. Kind of doubt that that's what it was. Some have said it might have been a supernova or a nova. Maybe some of you kids who are really into science, you probably know that a nova or a supernova is a star that explodes and it will just all of a sudden out of nowhere appear in our night sky and stay there for a very long time. And in fact, the Chinese astrologers noted that around the time of the birth of Christ, a supernova went off and shone for 70 days. So is that possible? Yeah, it's possible. 
The only problem is supernovas don't move in the sky, so that would be a little bit of a problem. Others have said that it was a conjunction of planets or a cluster of planets, one of the two. A conjunction of planets is where from the earth, the orbit of two of our planets come very close together so that the two planets actually appear to be one bright night sky, one bright light in the night sky. And a cluster of planets is the same thing. It's only three or more planets that come together and form a very bright light in the night sky. And oddly enough, both of those phenomenon occurred in the window where Jesus Christ was probably born. We don't know the exact year of his birth. We don't know the exact dates of his birth. But generally in the window where it had to have happened, both of those phenomenon did take place. Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars worked together to cause what I just explained to you. That could have been it. Another good guess that I came across this week is that it may simply have been Jupiter all by itself. There are times when Jupiter can shine very bright, unusually bright in the night sky, and it takes what is called a retrograde motion. Now, if any of you are into science and you understand stuff, maybe Dave, you understand what that means. I have no idea what that means. What I understand, though, is how this works in the night sky. The scientists say that when Jupiter's in retrograde motion, it rises in the sky and then it just stands still. It does not move for however long. And then when the time is right, it, it takes its activity back up, but it moves in a different direction. So it's possible that the first star that the wise men saw was Jupiter rising into the sky and then it stopped and led them. And then the second time they saw the star, it was Jupiter re re-taking up its motion and going back another way, which led them to Bethlehem. All possibilities, are any of them probabilities? I have no clue. If you want to look at this, you can Google the Star of Bethlehem. There's some really good articles out there. I found a couple goofy articles. You know, that's just the way the world goes. But there's some really good articles out there from Christian astronomers and theologians that go into details about these things if you're interested. But the bottom line is, even the best scholars I read this week and the week before said, we don't really know. These are just our guesses. Listen to the words of Ignatius. He was a pastor about 130 years after this star shone in the sky. And here's what he said about it. A star shone forth from heaven brighter than all the stars. Its light was indescribable and its strangeness caused amazement. All the rest of the constellations together with the sun and moon, formed a chorus around the star, yet the star itself far outshone them all. And there was perplexity about the origin of this strange phenomenon, which was unlike the others. So the good news here is that even 2,000 years ago, even people were saying, what is this thing? We don't really know what this thing is. Perhaps it was a special miracle of God. Ignatius continues, Consequently, all magic... And every kind of spell were dissolved. The ignorance so characteristic of wickedness vanished. And the ancient kingdom was abolished when God appeared in human form to bring to newness of eternal life. And what had been prepared by God to take effect. As a result, all things were thrown into ferments because the abolition of death was being carried out. 
By the way, those were words that Ignatius wrote to the church in Ephesus about a hundred years after Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And when I'm done working through Paul's words, I'm actually going to come back and teach you a little bit more about Ignatius and his relationship with the Ephesians because that's very interesting. But as for the star, I think the bottom line is we don't really know what this thing was. What we do know is what the purpose of the star was. So let me turn to that question now. What was the point of this star in the sky? What was its ultimate purpose? Why didn't Matthew, the only one to note this, note it at all? Why is this a part of our Christmas tradition? Well, our time is short, so let me just cut to the chase and tell you the main purpose that I think this star played. The purpose of the star of Bethlehem was simply to declare the glory of God and to proclaim the work of His hands in the skies. David said this in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. And friends, David is talking here about the function of creation every single day and every single night. And so how could it be that when the King of kings and the Lord of lords who created all the heavenly hosts came to take on flesh and dwell among us, how could it be that the created order could not shout out in praise of Jesus Christ and sing hallelujah in the way that they sing? Paul said this in Romans chapter 8, verses 22 and 23, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul is saying in Romans 8 that even the very created order is screaming out, groaning to God, when, O oh Lord, will you redeem all things? When will you come again? And then he says in Ephesians chapter 1 that the plan of God was to redeem all of creation in Christ to unite all things in Him and thus reconcile all things to God. Friends, please listen. Do not belittle the extent, the gravity, the meaning of the Gospel. It's bigger than you think it is. In Jesus Christ, God means to reconcile everything. Everything in heaven, everything on earth. Everything united in Christ and reconciled to God. So how could it be other than that? when this Christ came into the world to reconcile all things in Himself, that even the creation would have to shout out and say, Jesus Christ is the Lord. Listen to what Isaiah said in the midst of a prophecy about Jesus Christ. This comes from chapter 49, verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and here He has in mind the created order. Exult, O earth, Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted His people and will have, and will have compassion on His afflicted. And then again, David in Psalm 96 wrote this, Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. 
Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the seas roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then all the trees of the forest shall sing for joy. And why is it that the heavens are shouting and the earth is exulting and the sea is roaring and the trees are clapping their hands? Why? For He comes, Isaiah says, for He comes to judge the earth. It's talking about Jesus. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. You probably remember at Jesus' death, the darkest moment in the history of the world, when He hung on that cross, what did the created order do? Well, Matthew tells us in chapter 27, verses 45 and following, that for three hours in the middle of the day, the sun was darkened and refused to shine. And the earth shook greatly, so much so that the rocks were split in two. And what was going on there? The created order was crying out about the horror and the glory of what was happening there on that cross. And how could it be otherwise than at His birth, but that the created order would also shout out that Jesus Christ is Lord. I don't know what that star was in the sky that night, but I know what its purpose was. It was to shout as loudly as possible, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And He has come and dwelt among us to reconcile all things to Himself and glorify His Father in so doing. That leads me finally to my third question. What does all this have to do with us? How can the shining of the star of Bethlehem impact our lives today? And again, I'm just going to get to the point here. Cut to the chase. There's so much that could be said here. But here's the bottom line. If that star, which had no mind, and which had no heart, no affections for God, had no will, no ability to make a choice, and had no mouth with which it could scream specific and glorious things about God, if that star was for the glory of God and the good of the nations, then how much more should we, who do have mouths, and we do have minds, and we do have affections for God, and we do have wills that are bent toward God, how much more should we shout with all of our hearts, Jesus Christ is Lord, your King has come. How much more should we fulfill our purpose in this world by praising Him with our mouths and not just in our hearts? In the midst of a prophecy about the coming of Jesus Christ, the prophet Zephaniah said something that's just perfectly expressing what I'm trying to express right now. He said this in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. He said, and now he's talking to people, not to the created order. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. I hope you heard that, friends. In Christ, the Lord has removed the judgments against you. And He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you shall never again fear evil. 
Hallelujah. And blessed be the name of the Lord. In Christ, the judgments gone. Our enemies gone. And evil is removed from our presence. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Oh, brothers and sisters, I plead with you this morning, even as I've been pleading with my own soul for the last three or four weeks, don't let your Christmas traditions cause you to become dull to the beauties of what's happening at this time of year. These truths, these realities are glorious and they're infinitely important. They're like an infinitely vast and deep ocean waiting for you to explore. So spend more time thinking about them than you do in the hustle and bustle of buying gifts and wrapping gifts and going to parties. Let Jesus Christ dominate your life this Christmas. Ask Him, Lord, give me eyes to see Your beauty and give me a heart that loves it and give me a mouth that will, give me a mouth that will sing out Your praise. And that's my prayer for us as I close. That the Lord would grant us eyes to see Him and hearts that truly, authentically savor Him when no one else is looking and mouths that are willing to speak out about Jesus Christ this Christmas season. Let's pray now. Oh Father, You are great and You are greatly to be praised and Your greatness is unsearchable. Lord, if we, Your people, keep silent, the rocks will cry out. How can they do otherwise but to say that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. The Creator of the universe. The Sustainer of the universe. The Ruler of the nations. The Savior of the world. If we don't cry out, Lord, the creation will cry out. But what a beautiful picture it would be if we would join the chorus of the stars and the earth and the trees and the lakes and all that is in them shouting out about the glory of God. Oh Father, hallelujah. Give us eyes to see You, I pray this morning. Give us ears to hear You. Give us hearts that long for You, Father, more so than all of the other distractions of this season. And please, Father, give us lips that willingly and authentically and passionately praise You for who You are. You are worthy to be praised, our Lord and God, for You created all things, and by Your will they were created. So again I pray, cause the star of Bethlehem to do to us what it did to those wise men. It led them to Christ, and then they bowed down and they worshipped not the star, but Christ. Oh, Father, let it function like that for us this year too. Let it lead us to see You, to savor You, and to worship You with all of our hearts. Fill us now, I pray, Lord, with Your Holy Spirit, and go with us as we go, wherever we go, that we might spread the fragrance of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's in Your great and gracious name that we pray these things. Amen.